Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. We all have a sense of what it might look like to live joyfully, and hopefully we do. Uh, how do we live more skillfully? Today, we're going to be discussing how living skillfully is actually one definition of the word yoga, and that there are many tools that yoga provides that can help. I'm joined today by Molly McManus, an IAYT, that's an International Association of Yoga Therapists, certified yoga therapist. She's an ERYT 500 somatic educator, Ayurvedic health counselor, and Ayurvedic chef, offering private instruction, training, and continuing education opportunities. Molly is president of the board for the International Association of Yoga Therapists. She co-owns Yoga North International Soma Yoga Institute and is co-founder of the methodology Soma Yoga. You can find out more about Molly McManus at her website, yoganorthduluth.com. You can also find her on social media, on Instagram and Facebook, at Molly Yoga North. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, Molly. I'm really delighted to be able to talk with you today and to discuss how yoga can help us in living more skillfully and more joyfully. Oh, Laurel, thank you so much for having me on the program today. I feel very, very delighted to be here today. <laughs> so before we dive into our dialogue about using yoga techniques and methodologies and philosophy to build a more skillful and joyful life, let's start with a yoga moment. Let's start with a moment of present moment awareness. Oh. So let's begin right where we are, wherever we are and whatever we're doing. Let's just bring our attention to our bodies in space. Whether we're standing, sitting, walking, driving, just feeling our body, and in particular, feeling the surfaces that support our weight, feeling all of the parts of your body that are in contact with those surfaces. Where are our feet? What parts of our body meet the chair if we're sitting? And let's turn our attention to the breath, lovely tool that's always with us and notice as we take a fully conscious breath, the next inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling the warm air as it flows out. And then just following our breath, not trying to change the natural flow of our breathing, but just noticing. And as we rest here, right where we are, here's something to contemplate from the founder and spiritual director of the Yoga Hour, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien from her book, 
living for the sake of the soul. The eternally creative, life-giving power of God expresses as every soul. This power is within us. It does not take us to prosperity. It is prosperity. To prosper is to realize and express our innate wholeness. The eternally creative, life-giving power of God expresses as every soul. This power is within us. It does not take us to prosperity. It is prosperity. To prosper is to realize and express our innate wholeness. Once again, Molly McManus, welcome to the Yagara podcast. As I mentioned in the introduction, you are president of the board for the International Association of Yoga Therapists. And so before we dive into our discussion of yoga for skillful, joyful living, I wanted to touch on that for a moment, touch on yoga therapy, which some listeners may not be as familiar with. So how does yoga therapy differ from taking a yoga class? It's a good question. Um, I think there are some really big similarities and some differences. Uh, I think both taking a a regular yoga class and a yoga therapy session, whether that's a class or just a one-on-one, you know, they're both designed to help support a person feel more integrated with whole being, well-being. They really both are. So I think we give credit to both of them for that. But maybe the differences to start to talk about is that when you are working with a yoga therapist or going um, to a yoga therapy session, that person, uh, the certified yoga therapist or through IAYT, the CIAYT, we're called, um, has training often upwards of a thousand hours, um, even as a beginning yoga therapist. So that's a lot of um, hours of training, right? And this training is in specific competencies that support the individual to have a, a larger scope of practice than, than a yoga teacher, right? So have, we have more that we can work with. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some of the differences. Um, I would say we also really work with a multi-layered approach to health and well-being um, based on things like Everything from the koshas that that we've probably you've probably talked about on the show many times, the layers of our experience to working with doshas, um, the different kind of constitutions and when they're in balance and when they're out of balance, how do we help a person move toward more balance? So, so, you know, those are some of the differences. Um, Some of the differences are also knowing that a yoga therapist might have skill or um education around trauma conscious or trauma aware practices but they also might have education around working with someone pre and post hip replacement and so you just have a bigger breadth and depth of of probably um education and then experience we also have to do a long practicum that is similar to maybe doing a residency um, if you were going through med school or something like that. So it's a, it's pretty intensive. Mm-hmm. Would you say also that um, like if you go to a yoga class, you don't necessarily know, you know, what the teacher is going to be talking about. 
if you're going to a particular yoga therapy session, you're working with the yoga therapist around a particular issue. You know, it might be a type of pain, or as you said, it might be recovering from a surgical procedure or something like that, but it's more focused and directed around a particular, uh, around a particular issue, whereas a yoga class is kind of more general, or maybe I'm, maybe I'm, um, oversimplifying there, but would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of cases, I think a yoga class is more just let's feel better, you know, and a yoga therapy session is more, okay, there's some specific things we want to look at and work with to feel better. And for instance, I teach a, a class every Tuesday morning. It's a zoom class. And that class might be themed around restretting, resetting the stress responses, or it might be themed around, you know, working to feel st stable in a really unstable world, stuff like that, that, that maybe isn't just about, you know, a shoulder pain. Um, and although some classes will be designed for that as well. But so if you come to, a, to one of those classes with me, you show up and we have a theme we work with. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 In your bio on your website, I read that you've been interested in yoga and Eastern philosophy for, for your whole life, basically. Would you tell us more about what has kept your interest in yoga and Eastern philosophy over all those years? Yes, I will. <laughs> there are a couple things to say. I think first and foremost, a few words come to mind, and that is suffering. <laughs> Honestly, suffering, searching, seeking, hoping, all of those things are words that probably describe my longing for Eastern philosophy and the work you know, of the Vedic sciences and things like that. I had a complex childhood like a lot of people have. And I think what happened is as I started to understand or work, you know, with these philosophies, I felt like um, I, I, I felt less scared. I felt less alone. I felt less sad. And, you know, as I'm talking about this, I, I feel like I'm describing that that felt sense of a vidya, right? That seed klesha that um, cause us to feel suffering. It's the, the root of all suffering, right? And so that is part of it. Mm -hmm. Then the other piece I might say is that I think I've always had a curiosity as well about the sacred, you know, a curiosity about the mystery of our world, both the internal world, the external world, and, and somehow a belief in magic. <laughs> and um, there's, there's, a, there's a beautiful quote that's a piece of artwork around our house that, that is two little creatures talking. And um, one says, that's not magic. They would say, that's just the way the world is. And the response from the other creature is that they would close their eyes and with a deep bow of reverence say, exactly, that's how the world is. And so that that really is the thing I think that um, inspires me to stay connected. And then as we, you know, as I've learned about it, I mean, everything from learning studies in anatomy and being in anatomy labs and seeing the mystery and the absolute brilliance of this incredible elemental design. And, you know, that coupled with all of the mystery that that is in our world is what keeps me staying. There's mm -hmm. endless ways to learn here with this work. So. That was so great. Such a great description. And I, I love the the um, artwork that you described and how that's just the way the world is. Like I went through medical school, of course, 
and I understand at a level that most people don't about the the um, at a cellular level about all kinds of things that are that are built in uh, that cells have channel calcium channel you know blah 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 all this detail about you know what cells are but it is still magical it's amazing it is. <laughs> it really yes is amazing. yes so how I do think. they know how to do this you know <laughs> how does this whole system work and right. supports and and you know, some rush in to take care of the others, and then you know, I mean, it's just it's just an incredible, um, it's incredible when you start learning more and more about even how we work. Right. That's a study in magic itself. Yeah. And here we on the yoga hour, we really like to explore, of course, the full depth and breadth of yoga, as I mentioned, and the fact that it is a philosophy that is so rich. I I think many people who perhaps are just finding yoga or just go to a yoga class thinking about it more as exercise, which is a very reductionistic way of, of, of seeing that. And then to realize, to find a podcast like ours and realize, oh, there's so much more richness. And I agree, it's totally a, a lifetime, a lifetime study. In the Bhagavad Gita, actually, it's uh, chapter two, verse 50. It actually states skillful action is yoga. So that is one of the definitions of the word yoga. Uh, skillful living, which is what we titled this particular episode of the podcast. What does it mean to you to live skillfully? Hmm. Okay. So for me, there's a couple things to say, living life in accordance with my Dharma. Now that doesn't mean um, my job necessarily, although my job, I'm happy to say it has a lot of Dharmic um, expression to it, but it's being in uh, that harmony with myself, living in harmony with myself, rather living than living an adharmic life. I spent plenty of time in my life living outside of what was supportive to me and maybe to the world. Uh, and now I've really dedicated my life to being in that harmonious place. Not saying that's always easy, but it is um, a movement toward greater good. Um, using using my energy, using my life force in service of my higher good and and hopefully for the higher good of i'll say the world I, I wanted to say humanity but i really realize that it's not just humanity it's for the inhabitants of the world it's for the world itself as well yeah no that's it, really lovely that's a great definition because i think it really encompasses so much living skillfully so mm -hmm. We can imagine, for example, in interpersonal relationships, you know, uh, the more that we can avoid being triggered and going off on something before before we actually do it, if we can, oh. if we can take that moment instead of just reacting, you know, if we can choose to respond a different way, that's so much more skillful and there's so much less to clean up. It is. That's exactly what I was just going to say, like learning to be curious and pay attention to the ripples of my own thoughts and behavior, you know, living more in accordance with the yamas and niyamas, which I know we're going to talk a little bit about, I hope today. I then make less missteps. I ruminate less. I have to apologize less. I have to clean up less. And I do the least amount of harm and the most amount of good, right? That I can with my limited resources and, and life force. I, you know, I'm, I'm a small contained being in some ways and an expansive, you know, being in others, but I have to direct my energy well or um, I, I tend to make messes. I tend to, you know, hurt myself and others if I don't. Right. Right. 
Oh, absolutely. We titled this episode of the podcast Yoga for Skillful. So we've talked about the skillful, but also joyful living. So how does the practice of yoga help you in living a joy-filled life? Um, All the ways. (laughs) 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 No, uh, uh, a couple of big parts are a continuous reminder to bring curiosity to my life. Curiosity often will stop me from um, moving towards suffering. If I can just be like, huh, I'm curious. All right. What's happening. And my business partner, Ann Maxwell talks about that a lot. She's really great at helping plant curiosity for us all, but to also be willing to be aware and awake in my life and to try to couple that with, um, lowering my stress responses, right. Letting myself really get comfortable with the chemistry of of trying to build ease into my system is really important for me. It helps me um, feel more joy when I slow down and when I bring more ease. I've I've been a person my entire life that's, you know, I should be doing this already. I've got to get this done. I, you know, this is my life has really, uh, my self-worth has really been built on that. And I've been trying to change that and remember that I have to balance taking care of and being in this elemental body, right? Doing the things that this elemental body affords me to do with being in touch with my essential nature and really trying to remember that those, you know, if if I want to feel joy, that I want to bring these two together, have an embodied spiritual life, you know, that is that that's the secret. I think for me, it's not that I'm never going to feel sad or hurt. It's just that I know that there is something beyond suffering. There's something that's timeless and connected Mm. to everything. And that brings me back around. I had a really sad experience yesterday in that I had to help a, a baby deer that had been hit by a car and it was devastating. And yet, you know, I've been just thinking about it a lot about the nature of life and the cycle and how I was there at the right time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in some ways that I got to experience the full cycle of life in that moment, you know, like let myself find some peace in that. And so joy and peace can, can help us, you know, together. Yeah. Wow. That sounds like an incredible experience with the deer. Oh, it was, it was. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed on the website that one of the classes you teach is called the chemistry of joy. And I was intrigued. I want to take that course. (laughs) Would you say a little bit more about the chemistry of joy? Yeah. Full disclosure. This class um, is a class that, that I teach at yoga North and that I teach as part of, you know, parts of it as part of some of our teacher training, but it is based on the work of Henry Emmons and a group of, uh, folks from Minnesota that have built this this book called The Chemistry of Joy. Mm-hmm. There's a book and a workbook. I highly recommend them both. Mm-hmm. And it is looking, it's um, it how it's designed is it's a 10-week program that works with nutrition and brain science and psychology. And ultimately what I think this this book helps you do is look at the enemies of joy <laughs> and start to work with what those are for us as individuals. And it brings in um, both the book and the classes that I teach bring in looking at our constitutional types, 
uh, and how depression, anxiety, how uh, the enemies of joy manifest in us, depending on our constitution, for instance, like a person with a more of a vata or an air constitution will often get a more anxious version and in a, in a pitta constitution, a person with pitta in their constitution or imbalance will have a more agitated and sometimes that's internally focused and sometimes that's out at the world. And then kapha, of course, um, being that more earthy creature <laughs> has that more uh, traditional idea of depression of le le lethargy, lethargic, lethargic depression. And so these, these classes are really designed at how do we support ourselves as individuals with practices for body, mind, and breath that change that chemistry, that change, and, you know, really root out the things that are that are um, contributing to the suffering. So that's, that's what it's about. It's, it's a wonderful book. I really highly recommend it. Yeah. Thank you for that. <clears throat> and uh, it does sound like a, a really excellent class for those who aren't familiar with Ayurveda. What Molly was referring to there are the three basic constitutional types from Ayurveda, Veda, uh, that's uh, Vata, Pitta and Kapha. And there's mm -hmm bunch more we could say about that, but I want to take the conversation in a different way. Yeah. You teach yoga as a way to reduce stress, anxiety, and depression. And you've shared that you yourself have had success in using yoga practices in this way. How has yoga been supportive to you personally in improving your mental health? Mm -hmm. uh, I think the number one first thing is finding my way back in my body was a really big deal because I lived a short distance from my body for a very long time, was very much in my head. And I had to really bring myself back together to deal with and be able to get present to what was happening, what had happened and what is happening. And so that was the first number one thing. And yoga uses, um, especially, especially the kind of yoga that we work with, really uses an interoception, being able to sense and feel what's happening within, not just hunger, but you know, how do I feel? What's, what is, how does this affect me? How does that affect me? And I feel like for a long time for me, I was not paying attention to that stuff. I was actually trying to figure out what I had to do to um, survive, be in good favor, whatever that was, and not really, I was, I was forsaking myself. And so I think yoga really helped me find myself again and be more situated in myself. And an Ayurvedic definition of health is to be situated in yourself, right? And, and there's a lot of different things about that. So I would say that's the first thing. And then when we start looking at yogic philosophy, the richness of yoga philosophy, things like the Antakarana or the mind map, which you know helps us understand that there are multiple functions of our mind and we can become more present to them. We can learn how to tap into our own wisdom rather than letting, you know, the things that sit in our in our memory storehouses overwhelm us. I think that was part of some of the things that I think helped me and many other people is like knowing that the things that are bubbling up are there for a reason, but we can start to take the charge out of them as we, as we meditate, as we look at them, as we do body practices and let them come and let them go. Um, and then we can also do this when we think about the aspect of the mind that brings in information constantly, our senses, right? And our that outer aspects of the mind that are 
in this day and age, so incredibly overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And I think one of our jobs um, practicing yoga is actually to learn how to nourish and protect and settle the senses. And I find that that is a huge, huge um, key to health and well-being is, is really paying attention to that because we don't even think about them. And they are the only way we interact with the world. Mm-hmm. So if you think about that, they, they should take a major role in, in, our, in, in what we do to care for ourselves. So we do things, or I do things, everything from doing a mat practice to practicing Abhyanga, which is self-oiling. It's an Ayurvedic pr- practice that helps me learn to do things that are self-care and ultimately self-love. And I never knew how to do most of those things in my earlier life. And, and I'm learning, you know, at where, whenever I started doing this to, to that, that's important that, that it's, it is my birthright mm-hmm. and that, um, that it is also will be the source of my, my well-being if I can take care of myself. So, so hopefully that answers the question. Yeah, no, that was, that was really great. And I really liked your focus on uh, nourishing, protecting and settling our senses. I thought that was really very, very well said. And you mentioned a couple of practices there, the Abhyanga, which is uh, the uh, self-massage with oil. That's a lovely, lovely uh, practice for listeners who don't know about that. You can you can look that up. It's uh, I don't know that we have enough time to really talk about it in enough detail here, but it's that is a really lovely one for nourishing and settling the senses, and just even the focus that you mentioned the the fact that we can you know draw ourselves back and and remind ourselves that we are embodied, particularly mm-hmm. as we spend so much time in front of a screen which sort of takes away that sense of embodiment and also social media, which is uh, comes at us awfully fast and can be very overwhelming, I think. And we don't realize what effect it might have. As you were speaking, I was reflecting on uh, the fact that that self-study is one of the three main practices of Kriya Yoga as set out in the, in the Yoga Sutras, that it's uh, self-discipline, self-study and self-surrender. And in self-study, it's, it's exactly what you mentioned, uh, noticing this stuff, noticing like if you are spending a lot of time online, how does that leave you? What, what shape are your senses in after that? What is your mood? Where do you feel it in your body? That kind of stuff. It's just such a essential practice that can teach us so much about ourselves and about and guide us really in what we, how we spend our time and how we can even getting back to what we were talking about living more skillfully and joyfully is just that's that practice of self study really great. It's the number one. I agree with you 100%. We have to bring that online. And we have to, to change our relationship to it. So many people think if they pay attention to themselves, there's something selfish about that. And I really hope we can change that narrative because it is, it's your duty to actually know what's happening in here in a, in a way like it is, it is your duty and it's your right. And, and, um, and it can make, I think this, I think this whole world needs more people to pay attention to themselves in a way that they're getting lucid and clear about what supports better well-being for themselves and how they interact with others as well. Mm-hmm. And I did notice you mentioned meditation mm-hmm. in there, which has been one of my key practices for skillful living. I would say I mentioned that that ability to respond to something that's happening with my husband or even in the grocery store or wherever driving 
and noticing my response, of course, that's the self-study part, but then that, that um, space that is created by having a, a, a meditation practice that allows me not to just jump into getting angry or whatever, getting fearful, um, and allows me to be more reflective of like, what is that? What, what am I feeling? <clears throat> Where is it coming from? That sort of thing. Yeah. Am I in the present? Is this about what's happening now? Or is this just something being informed from Chitta, right? From, from something in the past? How do I get more present? How do I grow that gap time? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think it's important to say that meditation you know, of course, there's our traditional meditation that we're, you know, that we'd love everybody to be able to do. But for some people, that is not a kindness. And so we have to look at what is the kind of meditation that will work for you? Is it walking quietly in nature? <laughs> is it um, is it something that you're guided and recorded? Is it a moving meditation? The practices that I do on Tuesday morning, you know, are so slow and so mindful that many people feel like that's a meditation. So know that if you've tried and failed at sitting quietly with your own thoughts, it might be that it's just not time for that yet for you, right? There might be a couple things you want to do first to, to care for yourself. Yeah. That's lovely. And again, that where do you get that information? Self-study. So if yes. you're trying to meditate and it actually is making you more agitated, I agree. Trying something else, trying a walking meditation is a, yes. is a wonderful way to go. Trying a breath practice, perhaps, would be another way to go. As a reminder, I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the Yogara podcast. And today I'm here with Molly McManus, a longtime practitioner of yoga, a yoga therapist, and an Ayurvedic chef. You can find out more about Molly at her website, yoganorthduluth.com. We will also be posting the links to her website on our website, theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via our website, theyogahour.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. Molly, as I was reflecting about skillful, joyful living, it was... um, it was hard not to think about the restraints and the observances, the yamas and niyamas, which are the first two limbs of the eight limb path of yoga. We could spend the entire show talking about all 10 (laughs) of these practices, but I wanted to ask you just about a few of them as they do help us live more skillfully and joyfully. The first restraint is harmlessness. The Sanskrit word is ahimsa. And this was Gandhi's practice of nonviolence can also be translated as kindness or compassion. Could you say a bit more about how you find uh, this first restraint of harmlessness helpful in living a skillful life? Absolutely. I think that we come back to uh, how it is manifesting in us. For me, I have to learn and continually learn to practice kindness for myself. It's the biggest one. I, um, my own violence always started with violence I inflicted on myself Mm. and then it would ripple out like a, you know, like a splash of a rock in a small puddle going everywhere. You know, if, if I was unkind to myself, if I practiced violence to myself, it would affect everything around me. And so how do we do that? Again, I'll come back to this idea of self care. Um, I think, you know, I'm very happy to see that self-care is something that is being taught in a different way now. When I was growing up and you were growing up, that was not even a thing, right? This was not something that 
It was not something that we were taught. In fact, it was probably frowned upon, right, to, yep. to do that. And now we're really learning that this is one of the most important things we can do is like actually yeah. to take care of this so that we have less um, impact from things from, you know, er, from our early life coming forward. So self-care now is important. Uh, I also think that the violence that we bring in on ourselves from anything from, you know, negative self-talk, um, having a real judgmental thing around ourselves and others, of course, but first starting here and um, how we schedule ourselves, uh, the expectations we have of ourselves. These are the things that are, I think, how we smuggle in violence or a, a himza into our life, himza into our life. And they're the first things I think for us to start to look at is how is this happening within us? And then how, when you are practicing these, um, you know, these small acts of violence towards yourself, notice the ripple of it in your life. See, look 360 degrees around. And I think what that, you know, hopefully will do is motivate us all to practice, uh, to practice ahimsa with ourselves. Yeah. And then, you know, and then to start thinking about the different ways that you are interacting with the world and where is the kindness coming forward from you? Is, is it kindness? Are you able to pause and reflect before you react to things like that you've brought up or already that, that um, anytime we can grow gap time, um, the time that something happens and we react, I think is an opportunity to insert ahimsa. And to, to insert kindness. It's, it's, it's that prime space that we need. Mm -hmm. that, that's a big one. Yeah. yeah. That's really lovely. I love that you started with the self-care and, and self-compassion, self-kindness. You're right. When I was growing up, I think that would have been translated as selfishness, selfishness, right. and in fact, discouraged, not, not just not encouraged, but actively discouraged. And mm -hmm. so that is something that has come out more in just the world in our culture in recent years and that and the recognition that that is such an important thing. And sometimes when we listen to ourselves, again, practice of self-study, but when we're listening to our own internal voices, it's amazing what we are hearing and how negative it is. And thinking about what we might, words that we might give to a friend, um, we, would we would never say any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And yet, it's in our own mind. It's in our, it's what we're telling ourselves. So I think that's really, that's very insightful. And how many people struggle with self-love? So many of not enough, all of that. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> so just to choose one of the other, so we've talked about the yama of, uh, or the, um, the uh, ahimsa, the harmlessness, and now talking about just one of the niyamas, these internal observances um, that are, that are, uh, promoted as part of the living the yoga path. So one of the uh, niyamas is contentment. Mm -hmm. And to me, that fit really beautifully in living both skillfully and joyfully. Would you share with us how the practice of contentment has supported you in your life? Yes. And I have two things that are really coming to my mind first and foremost. And um, the, the first one is that it, this has been a major one for me in the last few years. I had a um, just two years ago, I had a, a pretty serious brush with death, <laughs> and uh, which resulted in a, um, a, a really rare autoimmune condition that that affects my health daily. 
And so I, at being a yoga therapist and, you know, in the world of yoga therapy, you know, you think you're supposed to have this perfect health and you think it's supposed to look a certain way. And so actually coming to terms and being content with the changes in my life and the changes in my well-being and still having a sense of well-being has been a major one. And I really try to teach from that platform is that our health and our life may look different and we can still have a, a deep well of joy even within that. And that's this, this um, looking to the things um, that we, of course, can have gratitude to for to, to do that. I think that helped build contentment, but also seeking in you know, contentment, which it's funny to say the word seeking and contentment in the same <laughs> sentence, but it's, but it's actually practicing things like pleasure without purpose, um, doing things that, that just are soft and enjoyable. Um, that's part of it. But, but ultimately I think it's, it's looking around again, your life and continuously making peace with where we are making peace with that. Now that's not trying to, to spiritual bypass. I do think that there's many things in our world that we want to work toward and we want to have activism toward, but we have to look at what's happening within us first. Again, this is the platform that I'm trying to speak from today anyway, and find the ways of softening our expectations and our grips on um, how we want things to be. So that's working again, that Klesha map we talked about, the sources of suffering to the very bottom of it for the thing that's called Abhinavesha. So Abhinavesha is the fear of death, the fear of change, the fear of anything that doesn't support our ego. Well, when we get wrapped up in that, that's when um, that that path toward contentment is so important is to let go of of any of those things to walk back up and, you know, practice things that help you feel more settled and more soft. Yeah. As you were, as you were speaking, I was just reflecting on how we're not really doing any, the yamas and niyamas justice because they do really interrelate with each other so well in the practice of one helps the practice of another. And of course we haven't touched on everything, but I, I did want to touch then on another of the yamas which is the um, the um, non-attachment, mm -hmm. uh, non-attachment. And I think that that to me feeds so much into the practice of contentment. If we're determined that our life look a certain way, if we're determined that our bodies or our health is a certain way, um, and if, we're, if we don't have that, we're not going to be able to be content. That is an automatic, you know, <laughs> like hits the brakes on contentment. If you're really going to be content, you have to be somewhat open in your idea of what's going to happen, realizing that there is a bigger hole that we don't, W-H-O-L-E, hole, that yeah. we don't, um, you know, that we don't, that we can't see necessarily in this moment. And not, again, not the spiritual bypassing that you mentioned, not trying to avoid that there are things that we are working toward in life, not having, it doesn't mean not having goals. It's like, we still have to have goals. We still have to do, do service. We, um, you know, we have to engage in the world. And yet, as we do it, we have to realize that there is so much about what we do that is not in our control. And we have to, that's the practice of surrender that goes along with it as well. Another of the, of the niyamas. 
that's kind of a long uh, diatribe on my part, but did you have any comment? Yeah, I do. Of course, it's that, that you know, going back to the Gita again, it's it's do the work and give up the results, give up the fruits. Remember that that your job in a way or your or your dharma is to to do the steps to do the path and you know it's also the same thing with hopefully when we do something creative and i want to say that that's a big thing i think most people need a creative outlet so you do something creative not for the results you do it for the process you do it as part of i mean that is the path to healing in itself so i think that's the same thing with this is 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 do is do the work <laughs> and let go of what might come out of it. Right, right. Yes, exactly. I think that's a good way of of describing it. I think it's something people struggle with a little bit, this idea of how how is it that I can be not attached, you know, to a result. Um, and it is a um it is a practice that brings a lot of joy with it because whatever happens is good. You know, you've done your best, you know, you've put in the effort and then being able to just let go and let it happen the way that it's going to happen anyway, <laughs> without mm -hmm. driving ourselves crazy. Yeah. I, I like how you put that. Exactly. Yeah. In addition, as I mentioned, in addition to teaching various types of yoga, you're also an Ayurvedic chef. And I love that about reading that in your bio. Would you share with us your journey to using Ayurveda as a basis for how you cook? Sure. Yeah, I, um, you know, I started my Ayurveda journey after I'd been involved with yoga for a long time. And um, I just felt like there was this piece that needed to fit into place for the whole puzzle puzzle to work. And I was right because, um, you know, Ayurveda really, for me anyway, brings in lifestyle practices. And those lifestyle practices are things like Dinacharya, daily practices oriented to well-being that, again, come from first self-study. Like, what do I need in order to be in balance? And one of those things is the way that we have or create a food sadhana or a food spiritual practice is how I think about it. Mm. So I don't always think we have to have an exact Ayurvedic diet. What we need is a food sadhana. How do you let yourself be, make your, um, you know, feeding and building yourself a spiritual practice? And to me, that's the most Ayurvedic yogic way of looking at it. Of course, I bring in things like the six tastes of Ayurveda are um, something we talk about, salty, sweet, bitter, pungent, and stringent. Um, and those things help the digestive process. They help us when we have imbalances. They help us balance the elements, you know, like air, fire, you know, water, space, etc. cetera. Uh, but, um, you know, I can do all those things. And if I'm doing it in a way that is, you know, not, uh, not as calm and kind for myself, then I'm, I'm then for me, I'm still not feeling like I'm, I'm living or eating in an Ayurvedic way. So it's the balance of eating seasonally, if you can, right? For the seasons even more so than for your constitution because if we if we're if we're not sick and we pay attention to the seasons we normally can eat well for them right we can the nature provides in a way and then if we're considering you know do we chew our food how um is our attitude as as we eat food these are all the elements of ayurveda it's not just we have to eat mung beans and rice and kitchery, which is a lot of times what people think is like, I just 
okay, I just have to eat kitchari with turmeric every day. And that's right. just not it, you know, yeah. that's yeah. sometimes, um, but you know, we do a lot with spices, culinary herbs really are the first medicine in many ways. And the right. kitchen, you know, our wonderful, one of my wonderful teachers, Indu Aurora talks about how the kitchen you know, is the first place, the first pharmacy, that is where the doctor is always in, in a way. And so um, thinking about what does this body need today? What does this mind need today? I need fruit today. And today's a day where I might limit and um, not bring a bunch of complicated food into my system so that my body knows how to work with it. So, I mean, I think it's a, it's simple. And once you work with it, it I think it, it becomes less scary to think about eating well as when you start to really t- pay attention to how it affects you. <laughs> Self-study again, here we go. That's the <laughs> big key of this conversation. Yes, exactly. Uh, I really like that. I really like this idea of having a food sadhana and also obviously, um, you know, melding in this idea of self-study and, you know, what is it we need? I would say sometimes people get really overwhelmed when they start to study Ayurveda because it is incredibly detailed, (laughs) incredibly detailed. Um, And you can kind of get lost in that detail the way that you're describing it does seem a lot more accessible, you know, to me, mm-hmm. I always encourage people just to try, just pick one or two things about your diet that you would like to explore and do that and not get overwhelmed by the amount of information that's out there from, uh, from, from, uh, uh, an Ayurvedic perspective. It's a lovely sister practice to yoga because it does have so much information about lifestyle and about, mm-hmm how we can stay healthy. And I totally agree about the seasonal focus, that that is a big, big part. If we can stay healthy and and adjust our eating with the seasons, I think it really helps us stay in balance more overall. This conversation is really built around skillful living. So it even strikes me that just what you've said so far is really talking about living more skillfully by paying attention to our food and, you know, using our food as a spiritual uh, practice. Did you have anything you wanted to add to that? The last thing I might say about that is I feel like so much of what Ayurveda is also saying is that we can, once we start paying attention, we can build in antidote practices So if I am feeling dry and light and spacey and ungrounded, I can eat food that helps me feel grounded and nourished and unctuous and, and, and those things. And so if I'm feeling sharp and cruel, I can eat things that will take me away from that. I'm not going to eat hot peppers and, you know, things that bring up my, my fiery nature. I'm going to eat, bring things that cool me down. And so it's, It is complex in its larger scale, but it's so simple if you can boil it down to things like that. What is happening for me and what would be an antidote? How do I bring in something that actually soothes me and brings down that quality that is too much right now? Mm -hmm. And and so if you think about it that way, that's very, very simple. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's great. That's, that's really lovely. It's, it's a way to start mm-hmm. for people who might be interested in that. Breath work, breath exercises and meditation are two other aspects of yoga that you teach classes about. What do you and your students notice about how these practices support 
joyful and skillful living. We already talked about meditation a bit and how it can really increase that, you know, that, uh, that pause, that pause for being able to more um, skillfully choose our response. Do you have anything else you wanted to add and, and then to touch on breath work as well? Sure. Uh, I mean, I think I'll, I'll go to breath work right away for a second, because I think what I want to say is dismantling breath holding patterns is a, a, a big piece of what we need to do. Um, we're being visited by a friend here, my cat. <laughs> uh, so dismantling those breath holding patterns, you know, breath holding patterns can happen from all kinds of things from injury to ha having experience of grief to, um, you know, having issues around self-worth. And I think what, what we can do is do physical practices to help dismantle those breath holding patterns to then also help ourselves have a willingness to accept life. That's what breathing is <laughs> in so many ways. It's being willing to accept life force and to live. And so, how do we actually come back around to um, staying centered in that? And I think that's a, a big piece of it. There's a wonderful book called Restoring Prana by Robin Rothenberg that really looks at how do we, uh, you know, uplift our life force? How do we build it? How do we nourish it? How do we, again, nurture and protect that? And that's the big piece about breath that I think is also helpful. So dismantling the negative breath holding patterns saying yes to life, and then looking at how we restore and protect our life force. Those are three things, you know, really to, to do. And then for me, what I would say also is simple practices that people could look up if they're interested is working with something called the prana values, the ways breath moves in the system. Mm -hmm. um, and there are mudras, you know, hand mudras that help with that. There are meditations and relaxations that help to move with that. And what, what is really interesting about that is that combines the things that you've brought up, which are meditation and breath work yeah. that you, when you can bring these two together, I think even for folks that are having, have a time doing a seated meditation, having somewhere to really focus awareness and the potentiality of breath is super helpful. And so, um, you know, I have lots of good resources for that as well. The Mudra's book from Into Aurora. So, you know, there's many, many great resources we have to help us with this. We actually had Into Aurora on the show. We've had her in the past and uh, talking about her. It is a beautiful book on Mudra. If you're looking for a book on Mudra, I, I love her book. Really, yeah. really love her book. And with that, unbelievably, we've come to the end of the time together. In closing, what, what words of inspiration or encouragement would you like to leave with our listeners? Yes. The thing that I have been feeling so much lately is to remind people that it is never too late. Mm. <laughs> it is never too late to start to establish practices of self-care. It is never too late to um, start the practices of self-love in that you deserve it. Um, and that it is worth the bumps in the road when you're doing it uh, to start finding, I would say, a sadhana or a, a satsanga group that, that can support you to do that if, so that you don't feel like you have to do it alone. And, and your podcast has been a really beautiful example of people who do that. So um, please, please start your journey. Mm -hmm. Really, really lovely. 
You've been listening to the Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the Yoga Hour podcast. My guest today has been Molly McManus. Her last name is M-C-M-A-N-U-S. You can find out more about Molly at her website, yoganorthduluth.com. A link to her website will be also on our website, theyogahour.com. Thank you so much, Molly McManus, for joining me today on the Yoga Hour. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I have too, Laurel. Thank you so much for hosting me and and many happy and joyful days coming your way. (laughs) Very nice. For listeners, we hope you'll join us for the many online programs offered by the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. Currently, CSE is offering daily online meditation in the morning at 6.30 a.m. Pacific, in the afternoons at 4 p.m. and on Monday evenings at 7.30 p.m. We also offer Sunday satsang at 10 a.m. each week. And again, all those times are Pacific time. Join us for our next online course, Change Your Mind, Change Your Life with Reverend Sundari Jensen, Teachings of Samkhya Philosophy. It's as an it's open as an online uh, on-demand course. August 6th is an online I'm sorry, an on-site men's retreat in San Jose at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment headquarters. It's titled Knowledge and Works from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. with Reverend Devin Sote. You can find out more about these and other classes and events at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment website, csecenter.org. Join us next time on the Yoga Hour when I'll be joined by Durga Leela, author of the book Yoga Recovery, Integrating Yoga and Ayurveda with Modern Tools for Modern Recovery Tools for Addiction. How can yoga and Ayurveda empower our recovery? Tune in and you'll hear more about that. The Yoga Hour is a service project for the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying it, share it with a friend. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, and Christine Sote. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. Bye now.